0: Hey, everybody, welcome. This is DJ LJ coming to you from the Middle East. This is the Compassionate Mess podcast where creatives and compassionates explore what it means to be fully human. We talk about the complexities of this crazy world. We talk about the need for self compassion and compassion for others, and sometimes the need for fierce compassion. What do we need? What do we really need? What? we really, really need. This is what we talk about. Welcome. Well, this is a special episode. It's a long one. This will be great for a long drive or you can divvy it up into parts and listen at your leisure. I was completely uh you know stunned by the events that happened in Beirut Lebanon as have been a lot of people the world i really didn't know what to do about this for 2 days uh and then i wrote an essay about it uh to vent off my thoughts and also penned a song so this is what happens to me as an artist when really difficult things are happening, I tend to write. So I am going to share the lyrics to that song at the end of my interview with uh, my special guest and former student, Mohammed. Okay, so this is my former student, Mohammed Fakih. We met. Oh my goodness! Like, what year did you come to Saudi?
1: Do oh you remember? How old were like, you? What?
0: You were 10, right? Or 11?
2: Yeah. So that's, yeah, It was like 10 or 11. That was like 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, I was 20. <laughs> I was 30 and you would have... No. Yeah. Oh, man. So are you 33? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I, yes, I, by the way. That's crazy. So I'm 53. You are 33. Anyway, now we're on equal footing. We're both adults with careers, right? (laughs) So anyway, so Muhammad and I, everybody, uh, just I'm going to like ignore you soon and just chat with Muhammad. But basically, we met in Taif, Saudi Arabia, which is an hour outside of Mecca. And Muhammad and his family came. His parents were already working or they came to work at the military hospital where we were.
2: They were already working there.
0: Okay, so then you came along.
2: Yes, I was born in Saudi Arabia.
0: Oh, were you guys in the in the Saudi school system? Where were you then before you came to Alhada? Or were you just always? No, I know you came to the school. Where did you come you, from? No,
2: I was in the Saudi system first, and that's then it. I came to uh, the SIS. Okay. I I remember those days when I knew no English at all. Oh, know,
1: that's like, right.
2: And, uh, and then I took tutoring with you, yeah.
1: And then my English stepped up a bit
0: okay i remember this so you came and you were adopted by the principal who loved you and meg mm-hmm. it was like okay we these boys need some tutoring and i don't know if i tutored Bilal, but i tutored you for sure right yeah yeah mm-hmm. and yeah so funny because all the fakie boys are you like four brothers are you yeah you all look alike almost well not
1: really well three of it's you almost, look alike
0: three of you looked alike let's get that straight or you and Hassam, yeah. you and your youngest brother
2: yeah. look alike very much and you're the, when they see us right now yeah. they're like you have the same personality you look alike you have everything everything we have is in common because you know when i was at a young age i uh kind of adopted my brother so you know i kind of taught him everything i he has a lot in of me in him, and that's something I'm proud of.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, and the funny thing is, like I, my memory of teaching all of you. So I taught you, Bilal and Hussam, yeah. and mm-hmm. Bilal's the second child. And then you have an older brother in the states, right? Mm-hmm. And, yes. Okay. He lives in Ohio. So I never knew that brother, but I knew the three of you. And the ones I know the best are you and Hussam, So, and you guys mm-hmm. look alike. Anyway, and then your parents are super nice. So, when I, so we met around the time, like a year or two after I moved to Alhada, and then you came to the school. By then, I was already Mm -hmm. teaching junior high English, I think. I don't, or was I teaching grade five still? No, taught
2: me grade five.
0: Okay, so that would have been, let me think, I had one year of teaching junior high English, then I was moved down to grade five. And then taught grade five for two years, and, mm-hmm. uh, two years or, yeah, two years for sure, I think. Anyway, yeah, it was and, two years was and it,
2: then we went back to, you know, you went back to teaching English.
0: See, where I teach now is very different than the culture of Valhara. So that culture oh. is pr- was primarily when I first got there, it was like the Lev- I walked in and I met the, you know, I met, G- I met Jod. I met that family and um you know head of ER doctor and 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 they were the first Arabs Lena was the first Arab to give me to befriend me and to give me the lowdown on Arab ways of thinking and Arab like pride Lebanese pride too so <laughs> you know so I remember I will never forget the lesson she gave me that sometimes comes back to me where Lena's like never admit your weaknesses to a stranger
2: (laughs) yeah that's true because they use it against you yeah that's something that's unfortunate
0: well it's that sense of also like i think it's lebanese pride also and it's also the privacy of arabs that you you kind of keep your problems within you know contained within your family unless there's really a reason to take it outside of that realm Mm-hmm. And your close mm-hmm. friends. So I remember, you know, I think she was really coaching me on, first of all, she was telling me how to live life in, in Saudi and Alhada, you know. And Alhada at that time, like you came at the same time when I really was just there a year or two. So Alhada was on that cusp of, you know, you'd hear people talk about the good old days. I'm sure your parents must have, you know, where there were lots of parties actually on the compound. There was. Do you remember, do you remember them? Because you lived there.
2: Yeah, I have been to some of them. You know, there there was a building over there. It was called Building F. It was the party building. That's right. Exactly. And every weekend they had a party and, you know, they had mascots and they had, they had had a lot of activities that, you know, just demolished over time.
0: And who ran them? Was it the, was it the Filipinos that ran, ran the parties? Mm-hmm. They yeah. would.
2: <laughs> uh, they know how to draw a party. By yeah, way.
0: yeah. And so. so, and then I remember, I remember when I first came to that place, and I heard the prayer call for the first time. So, as you know, everyone drives in in the middle of the night because the flights arrive in Jeddah at four in the morning, three in the morning. And I remembered, mm-hmm. like, I then it's drive. a two-hour, two and a half-hour drive up to Alhada in the mountains. It's like six thousand feet above sea level, and. And, and you, like at that time also the escarpment was only two lanes, so people were constantly crossing over and you could like have a head-on collision at any point
1: right yep. That's Makes the ritual
0: yeah, that's the ritual that all of us went through because everyone flies into Jeddah from internationally. Now there's an international yep. airport in Taif, but you know then there wasn't. And so I remember, you know, waking up the next day and going through employee orientation and, you know, um, Josie, the house mother, taking me to like employee health for all my tests again. So after after all the money you spend to try to get into Saudi, then you have to do everything again, including the chest x-rays, which is against all conventional wisdom, like don't have more x-rays than you need to. So, anyway, but I remember hearing the prayer call for the first time, and, of course, you know, it's that cacophony of voices, where you hear the muezzin calling, and then they're coughing in the mic, and I, I remember thinking, is this a bad tape recording? Like, what is this? It took me a while. It I was, I was, <laughs> you're laughing.
2: Yeah, because, you know, it's it's it still happens right now, you know, we have a mosque <laughs> near us, and the guy who gets, who comes on the mic and and calls out for the prayer is like, you know, make it nice, you know make people wanna come
0: calling like
2: well,
0: yeah, but it, it and it's it's you never know what you're getting right so some days that's yeah. exactly how it sounds, it's beautiful, and some days you know like people are being very human i actually I actually just appreciate it now, I missed the prayer call I missed the prayer call when I left the country, um mm. you know, so Yeah, so those, you know, I'm sure like you have loads of stories back from those days. And I remember like at El just thinking, wow, this is a very organized community of people. Um, That was the impression I got from, you know, like normal life where you live on your own, you take care of yourself on your own, and then you move into a military hospital community where housing is free, utilities are free, the only thing you're paying for is, you know, cable TV, groceries. satellite TV, groceries, and, you know, your entertainment. So that's the beauty of that life. Once you plug in, and I'm sure this is true for all, like, people who join the military love that idea of being part of a community and also having a lot of things taken care of.
2: Yeah, it was easy. Yeah. It was an easy life. It was an it was easy an, life. It was, you know, uh, you didn't have to think about, you know, all the things that you think about right now. It's like rent and bills and, you know all of that all of this was taken care of and you know it was like living for free all right. I have to do is eat drink and work
0: and if you were born there then your parents spent how many years in in Saudi?
2: Mm, uh, around 33 years
0: exactly like years. exactly right oh my gosh
1: yeah That's, their youth, <laughs> <they> <laughs> their youth
0: Wow so what age did they leave?
2: uh at around 55 so they maxed out
0: so they maxed out went went in their 20s as soon as they could Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and your Mm -hmm. mom what did your mom do
2: well uh because my brother was in the states uh what did my mom do in in the hospital in the hospital yeah like what were their jobs
0: what were their jobs like your mom Uh, was
2: she was she was the head nurse of the war
0: that's it that's it and Mm -hmm. i i remember just yeah (laughs) i remember your mom working her tail off that's all I remember. Yeah, and she's such a nice About, lady.
2: Uh, on calls and yeah. you know, late nights. And Super
0: responsible, worked her tail off mm-hmm. all the time. She's well, screwed. you
2: know, the hospital, you know, was very organized, and it was one of the top hospitals inside area That's right. It was, you know, uh, mentioned in one of the newspapers that. Al a Military Hospital uh, is one of the top hospitals in Saudi Arabia. Right. It was during that time where where uh, many foreign doctors, like uh, Canadians, British uh, you remember uh, Doctor Jacob? Uh, he was I think he was new from New Zealand or something like that. And no. he had a Filipino wife.
1: Oh his
2: maybe. son was Philip.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. His stepson. Yeah. He
2: was he was a colleague in, in, in school. And you know there were many, many, many foreign doctors over there, and that's what that's what made the hospital successful and organized. Yeah. And that was what made also the compound a very nice environment to live because you had so many uh, you had so many cultures mixed together, you know, and you have the opportunity to see cultures, different cultures, in the place that you're living, and you didn't have to go abroad to see them.
0: That's such a good point. Yeah, I remember the Egyptian doctors, and they i don't know—I I, don't—I think—I think the Egyptians would get together. The doctors would get together after work on the weekends or something at the community center, yeah. and maybe the mothers <laughs> would meet in another part of the community center. But they—they they would all get together, and they were real partiers, or certainly they had a strong right. sense of identity and community. So as much as there was this melting pot of different cultures, you also had. You had so like the, the, the compound was constructed around, you know, the hospital on one side up the hill was the school up walking that hill every day was a nightmare, uh, you know, up the mountain <laughs> and uh, then, you know, family housing was nestled between the hospital and the school. So you guys only had to walk half as far as I did. Um, and then single ma- single female housing, which had guards outside of it, because God forbid that any men should walk in, right? That weren't allowed to be there, other than maintenance. Single men. Yeah, I
2: remember we got in trouble when we tried to sneak in.
0: <laughs> 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 Funny. And uh, well, the guards were really nice, so you know, for the most part, I sucked up to them, and they were nice. They were, you know, after after eleven years there, I mean, they were all very. They become friendly don't they?
1: Yeah, because they
2: know you, you know, you establish a relationship with them.
0: And they know, uh, they know your habits, they know if you're trouble or not, really, they've investigated you enough behind the scenes, and they've observed you enough to know what you're like. mm -hmm. But yeah, those are the conditions then. And I remember, yes, I remember there being like massive Western, a large number of Western staff, this mix, this melting pot of cultures. Okay, so when you, um, when you were living at Alhada and your parents were working there, by the way, what did your dad do?
2: My dad worked uh, with uh, Saudi Ujah. He was uh, a, a technician over there. So he worked there for, uh, I think, 25 years or 27 years, something like that. Sorry,
0: he worked for what? Saudi?
2: Uh, he, Saudi Ujah. What's OJ? Uh, it's a Lebanese company oh, owned company. by Rafik uh, Hariri, and they were responsible for uh, the the palaces. Oh, okay. That were that were owned by royalty. They were responsible for maintaining it for you, you, the, all the gardens, all the facilities inside mm-hmm. these uh, these palaces were maintained by uh, the company Saudi Ujeh. Okay. And my father was a part of it.
0: Okay, so project so management was, kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was very, it was very convenient because uh, his work was right beside the compound, so he didn't have to travel for a long distance. Like, for example, to the so it but like twenty minute drive. But it was like a five minute drive from the compound.
0: Did your dad work in the palace? Yeah. That palace. hmm King Fahad's palace. I've been there.
2: Oh. <gasps> yeah. I, I've been there. I, I went inside.
0: Oh my god. Tell me. What's it like? The
2: gardens are amazing.
0: Gardens Even though from the outside amazing. it just looks like this just well, mm-hmm. it looks like a little
2: Well it's it's, it's very it's, simple. It's, uh preserved. Right? It's really preserved.
0: That I mean, and they we take know that. care of
2: it. They take care of it in a way that when you go into the into the premises, yeah. you feel like you're in a different world.
0: Oh my god.
2: Seriously. All the All the flowers, all the pavements, all uh, the decorations, everything that you see over there was amazing.
0: Do you think it's still the same? Do you think it's still being preserved?
2: Yes, it does. Uh, uh, It is. is. Uh, I'm not sure if the same company still wants the show.
1: Okay, But
2: uh, I think other companies do that. But I remember one day, uh you know when when a prince comes around when a royalty mm-hmm. regardless a prince or mm-hmm. the king or whoever yeah. comes along and, and decides to stay all the people working in that palace are on call they cannot go home yes. they have to stay right 24 hours yeah. they sleep in the palace they okay. give them uh, they give them porta cabins uh, with with a bed and uh, some facilities that they okay. can use and they have to sleep there so my father was once telling me that one of the princes came, and you know, uh, after he had his meal and everything, he decided, you know, give the people their their. I don't I don't I don't want to call it remains, but I want to call it like you know. The food know, after,
0: after finished, they finish.
2: People, yeah. Yeah. People came and you know they finished, and my I remember my father came when came in the house with a golden spoon that was twenty four carats. Oh wow. And he said. Look what they eat with. And I was like, oh my God, the luxury.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I remember that. So I do, I do remember even the shape of the spoon. It was like, it's was, it was so different from what we see. And so it, was it, that I a gift them, or like, did basically. your
0: father sneak off with one?
2: <laughs> no, no, no. It was a gift. Oh, man. It was a gift. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see the side of royalty. And this is, this is something special about the side of royalty is that they're generous. Yeah. They're really generous and they don't care like you know even if someone takes something not steal it but you know even if they like someone wants something and they ask for it they just give it to them all right just take it and that was something very nice Mm -hmm. other people took more than just spoons they they just took uh, a whole you know spoons and plates and all that and it's really something very expensive and you can see by the texture and the weight of the things that we use it's something very fancy that's but I,
0: yeah, so I do remember this thing. So interesting. Uh you know, you're the first person to tell me what it what it's like in there. So t- is there anything is there anything else to tell about what it looks like in there?
2: Uh well, um everything is organized. It's like, you know, uh, I've lived in Ukraine for a while. I've lived so in in Europe, and I lived uh the way things are organized and uh abroad, but you see that inside their palace. Hmm. you see the organization you see you see the way things go in a very timely manner so it's like you know uh, everything goes by on the clock
0: really? and it's amazing you, what just in terms yeah. of like the way that things like there's some sort of schedule in there
2: yeah and everything has to go smooth i mean uh the royalty does not have to ask for something to find it oh yeah you have to be prepared Provide.
0: So when you were there, did you meet any royalty or you just went with... You? Okay, so you just went in and you, even despite the fact that there was nobody in residence, you were able to see the systems in yeah, place? Yeah, uh,
2: the, only, the only time that I was uh, able to go in or I was able, allowed to go in was when there was nobody there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, uh, when the royalties come, yeah. uh, the security levels is very high. Mm-hmm. Nothing goes past
0: so why did your dad take you there? Was it just a one-off visit to did you and Bilalgo? Like, who went?
2: No, I went alone. I remember uh, it was just something that, you know, my father wanted something from me. He, he needed some, some help or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, not something related to work, to his work, but he, he just took me there. He, we were going off somewhere else. He just told me, like, come, don't do anything. Don't touch anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, just look
1: and that's
0: it that's remarkable that you had the chance to go inside that palace because all of us mm-hmm. many of us know many people i mean both of us know many people you know from the Alhada days we all looked at that palace and i used to just kind of have a sense of pride that my bedroom window face the palace i'm like i face the Mm -hmm. palace you know (laughs) but what's it like in there and you've actually been in there so cool it's it's really
2: really
0: interesting so you know and i forgot the question i was going to ask you about just um oh let's end on this okay so you know Mm -hmm. um when you lived in saudi and your parents you were all expatriates and your parents were raising you there when you went home to mm-hmm. Lebanon, can you just describe your experience of going home to Lebanon for holidays or like what was your toing and froing like with, what was your relationship like with Lebanon at the time and what was your understanding of it as a kid?
2: Well, as a kid, I didn't like to go to Lebanon because I didn't have any friends over there. I didn't have any connections over there. So, you know, we used to go to Lebanon. All right. We used to go sightseeing. It's like you know going to a foreign country because you live most of your life in Saudi Arabia during school and all that. So we used to go for a month to Lebanon, and it was mostly sightseeing. Um, I remember, um, like at at the middle of the vacation, after we we had visited all the sites and all that, we used to tell our, our parents, "Let's go back. We got bored." but um, let's go back to Saudi
0: so you guys wanted to go home so you didn't spend a lot of time with like Lebanese family
2: Uh, in Lebanon yeah yes we did yes we did but um, you know the thing is uh, people are busy over there and when you take your vacation people are still working yeah so you cannot have them available every every day uh, of your vacation. Mm-hmm. You really, literally have. If you have a month over there, you, you literally have uh, eight days, which yeah. are the weekends, right? Which is a uh, weekend to to go out and do something. And where did you stay? And like,
0: whose house did you stay in?
2: We stayed at our grandmother's.
0: Who's like mom's side or dad's side?
2: Dad's side, in Beirut.
0: Okay. So this is typical, true, I think this is a true expat thing. I, I, over the years, figured this out, too. The first time I went home in the summer, I stayed for 10 weeks, and I thought, why did I do this? Because Mm -hmm. everybody's working, and I'm on holiday, and oh my gosh, you know. I miss the sort of comforts of my own home. And then over the years, last summer, I went home. And I had a plan. And the plan was, I'm going to go to the gym for four hours a day, and that will eat up half the time when people are at work. And then, you know, I'll visit with my parents in the mornings, and then I'll visit everybody in the afternoons, evenings, before I go back to the acreage. So... So that's interesting to hear that your parents had that rhythm down for you guys as a family already. It's like we're going to have some family mm-hmm. time, but obviously then we'll need we'll, we'll exploit the, the freedom, our holidays, to go and sightsee. And kids often want to be back where their friends are. So so tell be me, definitely. yeah, you've got to go, right? Or do you have ten, uh, five more minutes? Five more minutes. Okay, so minutes. tell me about... Tell me about your visits with your Lebanese relatives when you went home. Like, what was that like back in the day? And really the context I'm trying to set here or what I'm trying to understand is there must be a lot of Lebanese people for a long time who have been like, why didn't your parents just stay in Lebanon and work there? There must be this divide in the society where you've got the Lebanese who stay and the Lebanese who migrate to another country to work and bring money in. Can you explain this picture uh, more so than just the visiting? Like, what was going on? What were the dynamics?
2: Well, um, to explain why my parents left Lebanon, uh, my parents came to Saudi Arabia during 1982 uh-huh. or 1983. At that time, uh, we used to have the civil war, and you know, Israel. And conflicts uh, with Israel and all that, so it was really difficult to live in Lebanon. You know, uh, my mom used to tell me stories when she worked in the AUH, the American University Hospital, and she used to tell me about stories where she went to work with missiles going over their heads, mm-hmm. and it was really scary at that time. And you know, you can't make a living in, in, in war times, mm-hmm. so they decided so my mom decided to come to Saudi Arabia to Al-Hara. Mm-hmm. She applied here and she got accepted. And then my father followed
1: mm-hmm.
2: After afterwards. And uh, this is why they left Lebanon. But the thing is, and this is something that you will see in all Lebanese people. And it's not really a generalization, but uh, Lebanese people love Lebanon. Even if they mm-hmm. live most of their lives outside of Lebanon, and uh, they hate the situation over there, but they have this you know this love to the land and love to the people over there that they always want to go back do you
0: think that that's and unique something... to the Lebanese, or do you just think that that's the nature of all of us that whatever country we come from that's what our identity our, our identity is wrapped up in
2: No, I think this is unique uh, to Lebanese because you know uh, when you have a country that is uh, torn apart as much as Lebanon, and you have people that still want to go back, this is something extraordinary. And yeah. I think that, you know, mm-hmm. really, uh, that uh, Lebanese people, uh, Lebanese people uh, really love their country very much. So and it's something that you don't see very often in other nationalities.
0: Yeah, it's the passion that I've noticed. Like, there's a great passion mm-hmm. and survivor instinct there. I think we should leave it there. We'll talk about that more, and mm-hmm. you know, I'll let you get on to your medical appointment since you have pneumonia, <laughs> you need to get this taken <laughs> right. care of. So you know, we'll touch base and figure out when to c- carry on this conversation. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, mm-hmm. any anything you want to add before we close off? Like, what did you take from this conversation? I'm just curious.
2: What's coming well, up? What's coming back, up for you? It brought back, it brought back many memories. It, it took me down, you know, memory lane, and you know, uh, it takes you really back to the core of where you come from, mm-hmm. and you start to think about, you know, uh, the possibilities that were there for you and the, the choices that were made. Um, for you at a specific period of your life like my parents made some choices and some of them i'm really 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 grateful for like um one of the things that i'm grateful for uh, is that leaving the saudi system schooling mm-hmm. system and mm-hmm. going to the uh international schooling system and that's something that pushed me forward and that's something that makes uh us unique people like people who were in this uh, in the school in our school it makes us unique because um, You've I had have... unique
0: opportunities, haven't you, from this, really? You're a third culture child because <laughs> you grew up, you know, you're Lebanese. You grew up in Saudi. So this is a term that non, you know, I mean, a lot of expats know this term and teachers in the international scene know it too. Third culture <laughs> child where really you have like several, more than one culture, um, you know, Saudi, yes. Lebanese, <clears throat> global right and you have now so what's interesting about talking to you is you're now a man and at the time I met you when you were a child with very sort of like you know in like a way more innocent view of the world and we used to argue about politics so I think we should well what we'll do is we'll kind of yeah so you're appreciating um you know your current sort of opportunities that you've had and (laughs) um (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it is always, honestly, we could laugh our head. We, we, we the Al-Hatta people always have something to laugh about because the memories of Al-Hatta were so much fun because they were just crazy ass mm-hmm. shit happening there all the time. Okay. So we're back with my former student, Mohammed, who's going to talk. Good to be back. Yeah. Good to have you back. So let's talk about Lebanon right now. It's been a few days. How many days has it been since the explosion in Lebanon?
2: Four. Uh four days.
0: Four days. In that okay. time I have donated to Jod, you know Jod and yeah, so you know so your former your former student colleague and my former student, so his apartment windows were blown in. I don't know if he lives off Hamra mm-hmm. or what. Humra being Yeah, I, I think
2: his business also got uh he has a business. Yeah. <clears throat> it also got badly damaged.
0: I'm sure so i donated to his um to his repairs um you know mm-hmm. and supported his, his kickstarter campaign that was started up by dahlia so dahlia's an actress in new york and other former students so i love how all you guys have like spread out around the world and are now in your 30s and um growing up but let's talk about lebanon specifically what have you um things have cooled down a little bit in the media on it, so like first you had the breaking news thing where 24-7 for two days we heard a lot now we're just picking up the big story so tell me what your overall sense is about things, um, what's happened and where you're at and what what's going on in your mind around it
2: well um, the explosion happened because of uh, ignorance for me but um, What surprises me, and I already uh, put a post on Facebook, what surprises me is that there are still people that um, stand behind politicians in Lebanon. And that's something that is appalling to me. I'm not saying that uh, we, we generalize and criminalize everyone, but we have to have a sense of accountability. We have to really really look at people who are accountable. And I can't just say it's just the current government and I can't just say it's that uh, some politicians. It's uh, it's a problem, it's a fundamental problem in the system of the country. It's ever since 1989, the Taif agreement and all of that, that's that's what uh, took the country on a downturn because of the sectarianism and people following Uh, people following uh politicians blindly
0: okay but that's that's a lot of yeah i get that let's let's just dial back a little bit so first of all because a lot of people don't really know the history of lebanon and you know the value of talking to you is actually to get a, a you know kind of firsthand um uh you know another glimpse into into the into the story of lebanon but You know, first of all, what happened, I agree with you, it looks like it was literally an accident and the port workers were just begging the authorities to please do move this stuff out of here. And, you know, what I read yesterday is that um, they were welding a gate shut at that building. And, you know, if you're welding, sparks can fly, fire started, the emergency services ran in there and people died trying to put the fire out before it exploded, or whatever, or after, you know, they died in the explosion. Mm-hmm. That's the story. Do you believe that that's what happened?
2: Well, uh, I have been watching... Like, what's uh, Arab News saying? Sorry?
0: What, what oh, yeah. are the Arab News outlets talking about?
2: Well, I'm not, I don't really watch uh, the news very much. Okay. Uh, there is one channel that I watch that is uh, deep into the investigation. And apparently... And what, what
0: channel is that?
2: Uh, it's a new TV. It's called Al Jadid.
0: Okay, Al Jadid, uh, which is are, Arabic, yeah, called the new the, new. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And they're really they're really gone deep into the investigation, and apparently uh, there was supposed to be uh, two point seven k tons uh, tons. Yeah. Of uh, ammonium nitrate, which is not true. Oh. That's yeah. Really? A large portion of these ammonium nitrates have been stolen because this storage area was unguarded, which was uh, against the law. Because um, um, when they when when the port authorities went to the judge and told them that we want to uh, take these goods somewhere else, they told them yes, put them in a proper place. And it should be guarded. Well, the welding of the door and of this area, what was happening is this area was unguarded.
1: Mm-hmm. It had a
2: huge hole in the wall of of this storage container. And what they were trying to do is covering it up and uh, doing some maintenance work. But the people, didn't. What the people who were doing the maintenance job didn't know is that there were also fireworks. There were also... Um, uh, many things, uh, tires, many flammable things with the ammonium nitrate. Okay. And they didn't know it. Mm-hmm. So they sent people on suicide missions.
0: <clears throat> right, I get the that. The
2: port authorities, what they're saying, we didn't know. How can a port authority not know what's present in the port? And that's something disgusting to me. Even, even the government, even the prime minister, he was saying, I didn't know. And then eventually, when the, when the investigations were happening and are happening, we have seen a document that uh, some kind of uh, authority, to create an authority, sent to the prime minister that we have ammonium nitrate in the port and this should be moved. It's dangerous. And he ignored it. I'm re- since july
0: i i get that i'm really and that's that is out in mainstream media that you know someone from the port authority the customs have been not only this last year but for for years now have been saying
2: since 2014 that's
0: right that there is so we're talking 6 years that there are dangerous supplies in there so my confusion has been as a person on the outside why are the port authorities under arrest instead of, you know, um, like, the as you say, you you know, Lebanese people want the government to just get out and step down, right?
2: Uh, or or not what? Not just that. They want the government and all the officials in the government to be sent to trial. Okay. so And that's fair. Right. And that's really fair. Okay. How can a government have no idea what's present in the port? And according to what they're saying, we have no idea. How can you say you have no idea? How can you say I have no accountability to what happened?
0: So what do the people, How? I get that. What do people think of the arrest of actually the port authorities? Who were the what ones who were, What well, if the port authorities well, were warning the judges and repeatedly warning them, then why are they not considered the victims? The judges replied. Okay, and?
2: The judges replied and told them you should move them away from the port to a safe location under your security. Uh And what was happening is the port authorities did not follow up on the request from the judge. Okay, Mm -hmm. so they kept sending the same memo again and again to the judge. And the judge at the end told them, we are sending you the reply and you're just negligent oh, to come and follow up. Why
0: is this not in mainstream media? Because we don't hear that part of the story. That the mm-hmm. judges replied that, that, and said, it's back on you, they, go uh, ahead and do it.
2: I don't know why it's not in the mainstream media, but when I'm watching the investigations, and I'm, I actually have goosebumps right now because it really pisses me off, Yeah. that they are trying to put a decent judge, a decent judge in... In the midst of all this hassle, so he can take the fall for this, in, well, while in reality he did reply. What they wanted from this judge is that he he wanted he they wanted him to give him the permission to resell these items, to resell the ammonium nitrate. And he, and in his official reply, he told them, "I cannot give you the authority to resell it because we don't know who the owner is." Mm-hmm we did not contact the owner. What we can do is just store it until we contact the owners, either send it back or we can confiscate it.
0: Right, so all these really like fine details about that case. I mean, I know they're not in the public mainstream English media. I've been Mm -hmm. looking today at the news. So in general, my question around that is, is this factional? Like you know, you hear uh, you hear them sort of slewing around like accusations towards Hezbollah versus like the Christian president or prime minister of the government, and like you know, help a person who does not un- understand Lebanon understand the role of factionalism in Lebanon, and you can even kind of like dial back to sort of how it is that this country, because I've I've explained in some of my writing that. And I didn't understand this until I went to Lebanon, honestly. And I Uh, fell in love with Lebanon and it taught me a lot about the Middle East. It taught me that the Middle East is complex because you've got complex groups of people. And Lebanon to me is like the microcosm for the Middle East. It really, in a lot of ways, is you've got people who've got a deep history of, you know, both coexisting together but fighting one another you've got a history of genocide there, attacks, you've got people divided in regions in 2006 when i was there during the, you know, what they call, what they like to call a conflict with israel which was really a war, a short war, you know, an invasion i guess. Um, you know, when i was when i was escaping out with a former colleague of mine from al-hatta um who taught at I- international college ic. Um, you know, um uh like we went through Syria and, and up into the up into the mountains and through Christian neighborhoods where people were perfectly fine waiting out the situation, and there was no sign of war um there was kind mm-hmm. of very guarded, you know, um, sentiments about talking about it, even. And, I, I, you know, getting out and then going into Syria and kind of seeing like this, like, almost like driving into a beehive, you know, of anger and resentment and kind of, um identification with, you know, the the what was happening where the israelis were going after Hezbollah and Hezbollah's dotted all through the country in Lebanon. There's a deep history there where Lebanon, there is. you know, Hezbollah is, is has has kicked the israelis out of the part of Lebanon is is in the south reinforcing the border and yet is viewed by the world as a terrorist organization. It is that it's called that, I mean, and you know, yet former colleagues of mine have said, look, they're just a bunch of farmers down there. But yes, they are also dug into caves with weapons. You've got a very complex country with very yes. divided opinions. And I've met an Armenian songwriter who's now out of Lebanon, but... Obviously, his family and friends are there and, you know, they've got their own sort of um, history of, you know, what they call genocide and a sense of being marginalized. You've got Syrian refugees in Lebanon. You've got like, you've got the Palestinians who have long time been in camps and they have been radicalized and also victims. What is, can you just like paint a historical picture and bring it to the present from your, from your um, words?
2: my perspective uh, on the history of lebanon well it starts from the civil war in the civil war which uh, was it when was not uh, since uh, the 70s okay 1970s um the conflicts were not uh political it was more uh a religious conflict it was first christians versus muslims and then uh it divided further, deeper after the civil war. I mean, during the civil war, it was just Christians and Muslims, mm-hmm. Muslims as a whole, and Christians as a whole. Okay. And there was a lot of genocide. Uh, there was a lot of killing. Uh, a lot of people died during this civil war, and then
0: at the hands of who? Like, can you can you flesh that out a bit more? Who died? Okay, on one? the hands,
2: uh, on the hands of. I'll tell you the leaders of them. There, there was uh, the Lebanese forces. There was. Uh, there and they are Christian called...
0: backed, or they yes
2: Christians. Okay, they are Christian backed. Okay, let me just. just okay, and there was also um, a, another Christian force. It was it's called the Kataib. And then you have the, the Muslim side, uh, people who are who were with. Uh, I forgot his name. The Egyptian leader, I forgot his name. Um. So um. The Egyptian okay, I leader, his name, but yeah, Egyptian leader. The I that... he was a he was a he was a president. Hosni Mubarak Sadat. or
0: the one before him, Nasser.
2: No, no, no. Before Sadat.
0: Oh, before Sadat. Ah. Oh. Mm-hmm.
2: Before Sadat. I'm googling so, one So it was talk. during the 1970s. Okay. So they they were at war, and then after that. They went to the. They went to. They came to Saudi Arabia and they had the Taif Agreement. And this is where Hariri comes into the picture mm-hmm. because because he was backed by Saudi Arabia. And here is where the division, the sectarian division, came to Lebanon. So then you, we, we just knew that uh, uh, we just knew that there were Muslims and Christians. So you but, had. So
0: you had Rafi Hariri you, was your president.
2: Well, he was the prime minister. The prime the minister at that, yeah, at that time, uh, the president was uh, Michel Oh,
0: okay, still.
2: Uh, no, no, no. He, no, the president was Michel Michelon Michel was the uh, head of armed forces. Okay. And he was bombarding. He was bombarding his own people, also. Right. So the, the, so also the military, uh, our army, was divided into Muslims and Christians. Okay. And then when Rafiq Hariri came it got divided even further into sectarianism. So we had Sunnis, we had Shiites, we had Mar- uh, Maronites and Catholics and all of that. And th- and I just want to where- understand
0: this, okay? So Rafik, sorry, I missed something here. So first of all, the I was looking this up. So the president before um, Hosni Mubarak was Nasser or before Sadat? Mm Abdel Nasser, yes,
2: Abdel Nasser. It was Nasser,
0: yeah, Gamal Abdel Nasser, Mm -hmm. that's right. Then it was Anwar Sadat, then it was Hosni Mubarak. So what was the relationship Mm -hmm. between Lebanon and Egypt? And how, sorry, I missed the connection there.
2: Well, uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser was a a symbol
1: Mm
2: -hmm. and and he had a political party. And we had an extension of this political party in Lebanon.
0: Is that the Islamic was...
2: Brotherhood? No. No. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Jamal Abdel Nasser was not Islamic. Uh,
0: right, on okay. the Islamic
2: uh, Brotherhood. Just trying to understand. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, they had an extension in Lebanon, and they were leading the, the, the Muslim forces in the civil war.
0: Okay, so you had an outside was, country that's that's feeding into Lebanon's, like, again, this is like part of what goes on in Lebanon, isn't it? So you've got outside countries yes, that are funding, you know, forces that are fighting for power, right? That's That's been exactly. the issue with Syria. Syria was kicked out in 2004, 6, five.
2: Well, actually, in the TIEF agreement, when Hariri came and all of that, they agreed that uh, Syrian forces will come and will monitor the peace okay in Right. And will reinforce the peace in Lebanon. And uh, it bugs me that uh, we as Lebanese people cannot live together. Right. And cannot really uh, take matters into our own hands. We okay. have to always have some foreign power come and monitor the peace. And you've got the UN in the the
0: south as well, right? Like along the border with Israel too.
2: We have the UN right now.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And that really bothers me. Don't we have any leader that is fit for for this? We have people that are geniuses all over the world. We have we have people that are really fit for this. And, but why but don't you?
0: Why don't you have that? Like, why? What is it in the people? I'm curious. Do you think it's in the people, or do you think the people actually want to get along, and it's the governments fomenting, like the the various faction factional leaders fomenting trouble to gain power?
2: Well, it is. It is the leaders in Lebanon uh, that uh, they're just hungry for power, and and it's not really power more than they're um, hungry for money. Mm -hmm. Okay. So every time something happens in Lebanon, uh, you can see a trend. Mm
1: -hmm. It
2: turns into a sectarian conflict. Yeah. So it's like Sunnis and Shiites. And suddenly you have the Christians who are already divided within themselves. They are backing up Sunnis and some of them are backing up Shiites. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is pitiful. So, for example, right now, right now, uh, it has turned into something sectarian. They're saying uh, Beirut is 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 Sunni. No, it's not. It's not supposed to be. It's the capital. It's for everyone, and Lebanon is for everyone. I don't really see that. I don't see the point of uh, of this sectarianism, other than the leaders. uh, I don't like to call them leaders. Mm -hmm. The Political families, I like to call them political families of Lebanon, they feed sectarian conflicts just for their personal gain. So they don't lose their uh, po- uh, the, their popularity within the people. And, you know, every time something happens, every time something happens, it turns into a sectarian issue. And that's something disgusting to me. I mean, we're all human beings. I don't look at religion as something that, that, uh, to govern people's, uh, govern a nation, politics and and govern a nation. Mm-hmm. I'm someone because we studied American history. I am someone who really believes in separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want at home. You can worship God however you want. You can worship or not worship. Do whatever you want. But when it comes to policies and when it comes to governing a a, a nation. Mm-hmm it's supposed to be laws and reinforcement of these laws and all of
0: that. Yeah, I think the world from the outside, Mohammed, doesn't really understand um, Lebanon in that sense at all. And, you know, I Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it is extremely... You're articulating... It's extremely complicated and you're articulating, you know, everything in a nutshell that, number one, there's a problem with ruling families um, and the the sort of level of deep corruption there and hunger for money, lust for money. And two, Mm -hmm. the 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 influence of religious sentiment and I guess that's what I find interesting about Lebanon is that you know there's always um you know my experience of Lebanese people is has always been the kind of divided experience that some people are really religious and some people you know are religious or not religious but really move religion into a part of their life. They're not governed by it. And, you know, um, what's see, the... This is
2: the beauty of Lebanon. You have this coexistence between people, and you have this freedom of uh, of doing whatever you want. You can be religious, you can be non-religious. How
0: free can... is Lebanon? How free is it really?
2: Uh, Lebanon, if you're looking at uh if you're looking at down, like, uh, down, to, down to the people's level, it's really free. You can do whatever you want. So people
0: Muslim. coexist you know, with different values comfortably mm-hmm. or not comfortably?
2: Comfortably. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can be a Muslim and not pray, not fast, go and drink and have parties and live your life and nobody will tell you anything. And you can be uh, very religious, and nobody will come and tell you what are you doing. So okay. this this is the beauty about Lebanon. It's really liberal.
0: And it used to be like the considered the former what was it Switzerland of the Middle East or Switzerland? Yeah. Yes. You don't have a memory of that, or you think. do? Is that like a sentimental uh, generational before you thought? I mean, not thought, but experience, memory.
2: Yeah, it was like my parents' generation. Yeah. It was before the Civil War.
0: Okay, so we're getting a little bit of a context of how things feel to you right now. And your parents, can we just before, yeah, like I I really wanna know how, how they feel about what's happened. Because they're Whoa. they're out of country. They're like they're like you're mm-hmm. you're also an expat. You're not in country. You have a brother mm-hmm. in the country. You've got relatives presumably in the country. We both have former mm-hmm. you know people. We, we both have former people from our Alhada experience in the country. And then you know I was struck by the fact that yes, right after many years of your parents working in Saudi as expatriates, not in Lebanon. Why again? Did they work for 35 years in Saudi? Better opportunities. And now why have they not gone back to Lebanon to live instead of, they've, instead of going to America? And how do they feel about what's happening in Lebanon? Because generally many Lebanese tend to have a home in Lebanon and then they get out. They have both. What, what, tell me.
2: My parents have a home in Lebanon, but uh, they would not go back to it. It's just there. Uh, My parents left Lebanon during the civil war. Uh, Apparently, they came to the conclusion that you cannot create a family, you cannot create a living under these circumstances. And, you know, everyone leaves their country in the hope that one day things are going to be fine and we're going to call back. And that's why many, and you see all Lebanese people have homes in Lebanon, and they leave it for a while in hope. And, and they dream of a day that they can come back to a country that is well established. Unfortunately, though, this is just a dream that will never come true. And I'm one of these people who bought a home in Lebanon. But I, I'm hoping that one day I dream of a Lebanon that one day I can go back to it and you know make it make a decent living. I don't want to be a millionaire in Lebanon. I just want to live in Lebanon. I love Lebanon.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, right now. When, when the explosion happened, actually, I was speaking to my mother over the phone on video camera and, you know, and she told me, hold on, hold on, I'm watching, I, I have the TV turned on and I have some breaking news about an explosion in Lebanon. And then she broke into tears. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, what's happening? Uh, I don't really watch the news. Uh, I, it's been like three or four years, I decided to never never switch on the tv to watch the news i just read the news on uh news feeds and that's it but because she told me that there's because 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 i don't like to be dragged into um sorry but i don't like to be dragged into the crap of uh um you know our media our news they are just targeted and the way it is targeted, they target young people's minds at, at being, you know, following some politician or following some kind of religious sectarianism. And, I'm, and I like to break free from that. I like to have my own mindset. I like to read and judge and, and see things.
0: So you don't consider so the decided... BBC um, as even an attempt at balance? Like you've not, uh, so, okay so you so i don't
2: watch any news okay. i just read the news and then i tend to go fact something
0: okay so your mom burst into tears from other sources. yeah got it
2: yeah so my mom burst, burst into tears and i was like what's happening so i started I, while we were speaking i thought just hold on let me look let me look and start uh, and i started to read about this explosion and you know this initially it was a fire and then this big explosions and then you know, now we're connected globally and everything and all the videos came to me on WhatsApp. And I was like, oh, my God, my my heart sank. I broke into tears also. I was like, oh, my God. I, I started calling my brother. And during the explosion and during any kind of uh, event Bombardment. of yeah. this magnitude, mm-hmm. you cannot get through. No. And I was worried sick about my brothers because I know that they're at home. I, 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 but, but I don't know if they're if they're at home or they're outside, because when I'm just going to go back in, in history in 2005, when the assassination of Rafiq Hariri happened, my brother Bilal was in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Prior to the explosion of Rafiq Hariri, two hours before the explosion, he was in that area.
0: Oh, right. So let's just frame this for anyone who doesn't understand. So Rafi Kariri was your prime minister, and he was mm-hmm. assassinated by?
2: Assassinated, assassinated. I don't
0: know. Oh, right. They, actually, aren't they supposed to tell us that today?
2: I think so. I think they are now, look, like 15
0: um... years later or something like that, they're going to tell us um, about that story in the heat of this event. They've got?
2: Some people look. Some people say it's Israel. Some people say it's Syria. Some people say it's Iran. Some people say it's Hezbollah. Yeah, right. And actually, um, uh, but because I, I was involved so much into, into the details of this, I saw a lot, of, a lot of lies flying around, and the way the investigation was conducted and all of the things that were, that were happening during this investigation, uh, I solidly... Believe that this investigation is now uh, being used for political gains. Mm-hmm. It's not really. It's not really going to tell us anything about the truth. Although, although it's an out outside
0: it. investigation, Mohammed, like it's done by the global, isn't it done by the global community? It, it
2: is. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. It's done by the UNIFOR, and I think it's done by the by the UN. Mm-hmm. But. Because I was so involved in it, and you know you, you hear different point of views, and then you're, you're faced with documents. And it's surprising to me uh, because even the international community, at one way or another, at one way or another, uh, will take advantage of such a situation to put pressure on Lebanon,
1: mm-hmm. or
2: to put pressure on governments to, uh, to gain something that they couldn't get in normal situations. I've once watched this documentary about uh, how some nations—I don't want to name any nation. I don't want to cause any—I uh, don't want to cause any conflicts, and I don't, I don't want to cause anyone to say, "Oh, you're following this one, or you're following that." But mm-hmm. this country. But I've seen a documentary on how some nations use uh, debt. They will loan the governments money—a buttload of money—and then these governments cannot pay back the money that they have taken as a loan
1: mm-hmm. and
2: in one way or another they have control over the policies of the country
0: oh i think another the world, yeah yeah i think the world itself is seeing this you know like not just in lebanon but around the world we're all world. a little bit at lo- at a loss for the fact that ordinary people have no control over what governments are doing And government leaders themselves are so, yeah, it does feel like you've got the ruling families and, you know, the ruling politicians who have a lot of power. And it's so, you're talking about something where you and I know others, you know, and I think that Lebanon's ordinary people are just really pushing back hard now against these social systems and structures, and political systems and structures that just seem to have had unchecked power for so long. So I hear what you're saying, that you really question the validity of any results that are going to come even through the UN or government courts. And I guess, you know, that's that that's fine. So we'll just leave that where that is, um, unless you want to add to that.
2: Uh, I, um, not really. Okay. Um, I just... Don't don't trust politics.
0: Okay, so I really
2: don't trust politics.
0: I get that, and then, then I think that's that's exactly how Lebanese people are feeling right now, right? Like, especially young people, mm-hmm. because your futures are being squandered away there, and your parents are like, in a way, like the Palestinian refugees, just in a in a better position. But now Lebanon is like I've never, you know, it's my description of this is. It was. I'm looking at Lebanon today and it feels like the way I felt when I was watching Syria go from being mm-hmm. like a bubbling mess to all of a sudden into a full-blown war. And now we've got a situation in Lebanon that is so unbelievable because the heart of the city. So Rafi Kariri, was he loved by the people or not? Or was it divided along, you know? It was divided.
2: Religious was really lines? Divided. Look, prior, lines, prior to his... I Prior to his assassination, the, the the people were divided on how good he was and what benefits he brought to the country and the prices of the things that he brought to the country. But but the thing is, Lebanese people are very uh, passionate and they're very emotional. So once a person is assassinated or once a person dies, you tend to forget everything negative about them and then you, sh- you just put a shining light on everything that he's done positive.
1: Right,
0: the kind of glorification. Well, first of all, Mm -hmm. you know, Rafi Kariri with his, you know, so as everyone knows, I think in the Western world, right, there was this, all you have to do is read Wikipedia to get this, that, you know, with his own company basically rebuilt the city center. But, you know, the conflict around that is that all the old city center was wiped clean, scrubbed out. And all you had was basically a fenced-in area of a very beautiful set of buildings full of rich stores that ordinary Lebanese people were invited into. um, But nobody could really... It wasn't a real center in any way whatsoever.
2: It is still not a center. It's it's actually... uh, When you talk about city center, uh, it's supposed to be full of life.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It's supposed to be somewhere that people want to go to. My experience with the city centre is that something that is not affordable. I mean, I'm not going to go hang out for a night and put a massive amount of money on something that is fake.
0: And it's not alive, right? So that's not Mm, really the true, as I've described it, that's not really the heart of Lebanon. So while it It may be the quote unquote or a centre, like lots of big, lots of big cities have several centers within a center although it 's a central area it 's really a government created zone so Hariri yeah. died Lebanese people basically sort of on the one hand the country i I know because when I was there people were like well what 's he doing for the people down south and a lot's changed since two thousand and six um, to now or two thousand yeah two thousand and six to now we 're talking fourteen years so my observation is that there has been more development down south but who knows how much only perhaps Lebanese people know has there been more development down south because the grievances were that you know Hariri Sunni and that the investment went into the center and then of course like the overall grievance is this is not for the people this is for Hariri so I've been so confused like People have revered. They've kept the building where he was bombed. You know, like fenced off, and there is a monument. Like, look at that bombed out building. And what does that bombed out building, where the, the that, that assassination, what do those buildings mean? And why have they been kept up like that?
2: Are they still it's there? Just kept up. Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know after this explosion if they're still there mm-hmm. or not, or if they have shaken down and broken mm-hmm. down into pieces. But uh, they have put them as monuments, just you know, to remember that, uh, to keep people, and that and this is something that I'm really against: to keep people in the memory of, you know, of the assassination, and to keep people fired up about, about about it. And okay, I do understand that he was assassinated, and it's not right. I'm against any any form of violence anywhere, but. Um, after 14 years, life should go on mm-hmm. you should take these downs you should you should take these monuments down you should do some kind, some form of change rather than keeping a shattered building up Make something beautiful, replace mm-hmm. it by something beautiful make it something that people would want to go to and really remember this person for something beautiful
1: mm-hmm. that
2: he has made rather than making it something
0: that is very hauntingly ugly. Yeah, that's interesting. You talk about, you know, like, so do something useful and beautiful um, in the memory of someone who lost their life and contributed something Mm -hmm. to the country right i think there is there is some mix of sentiment that after you know 30 years of civil war there was kind of a a rebuilding and on the other hand yeah so i think there there the lebanese it my observation has been that there's been some respect for hariri but it's been very controversial
2: um, the problem is, okay, uh, he is, and he is still, he was, and still is respected to some extent. But the problem is, now after all these things that are that are happening, especially in the past year, since October last year until now, uh, his reputation has been tarnished.
0: Well, that's um, right. The so the Hariri said- family, like that, that that name now under his son, like for a while after mm-hmm. that all happened, and when I left Lebanon, you know, and I've been teaching abroad. You know, my observation was that the Hariri name was very, like, respected still. Popular and, and it, popular. And
2: it, no, it, it, it was popular and it blossomed yeah. in 2005 until 2000, let's say, until 2000, 2015, 2016. And then Lebanon came crashing down. And now people who were supportive of Hariri now want him out and they're really cursing him out yeah. please leave
0: yeah and didn't I'm he like i thought i i thought the Hariri son stepped down didn't he
2: he did step down but uh the thing is in lebanon so let's just be clear down, did
0: he become the prime minister after his father
2: uh or just after, after no uh, he was Actually Rafiq Hariri was the prime minister and then no Rafiq Hariri when he was assassinated he was not the prime minister the prime minister was Omar Karami okay. who who passed away okay and then Omar Karami stepped down and Saad Hariri came so yeah he he became the prime minister for for some periods of time mm-hmm. on and off but um i just i'm just one of the people now who just I don't wanna hear the same names anymore. I don't wanna hear Hariri, I don't wanna hear I don't wanna hear uh, Nasrallah, I don't wanna hear Birri, I don't wanna hear any of these names anymore. I just want them out. Just
1: mm-hmm. leave.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, I respect I respect Rafik Hariri, I respect what he did to the country. But I'm one of the people who were against uh, putting his grave in the center of the city. Right. This is not a grave here right it's it's just a bad reminder of, of of death and destruction do you
0: think you're typical okay, then I, with that view do you think you're typical is that how people feel
2: no. maybe people if people listen to me saying this maybe it's going to be frowned upon maybe people will not agree with me mm. but um i'm more of a practical person i don't really tend to be uh taking to taking with emotion
0: do you think that the young people? Loves- do you think young people share your sentiment, or do you just think you stand as part of a liberal, like Lebanese group?
2: Of- I think I started part of a, a liberal Lebanese thought process of thinking. Okay. Uh, I, I don't like to give glory to one person. Okay. If you're going to give glory, give glory to, to to the whole nation. So give glory to Lebanon.
0: Okay. So I can't, I can't help but think that there are many others like you. I don't know why I think that. Don't you think there are there many is. others
2: like you? There is. There is. But the problem is people who think the way I do, there are minorities. We are a minority in, in this way of thought, in this process of thought. And that's where the problem is. There is a saying in, in, in Arabic, and it's also in Islam, they say you cannot change a country or you cannot change what's in people unless you change what's in yourself. so people need to change from within and then we can spread this truth. but as long as you have this mindset you know of following someone and 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 this mindset of following some some fake religious beliefs, I call them fake because no religion on earth will tell you go and take what's yours by, by violence uh, or by force. There is no way any religion, there is no way any religion uh, gives gives this uh, or backs up this, uh, this ideology.
0: But, you know, it's I not just believe. one ideology in Lebanon. That's the problem, right? It's several ideologies at war with
2: each mm-hmm. other. But here's the interesting part. If you really look, down at the core of these ideologies it's all the same it's not religious it's not it's not powered by religion it's powered by politics it's powered by money with the covering they're using religion as a cover to it
0: okay well i have it, to i is. have to stop you there because i really don't know what you're talking <laughs> about specifically so i'm going to ask a few really specific questions is Lebanon okay. a democracy or not?
2: Uh, it's a fake democracy.
0: Why is it fake? You know, they we have a former, we, have, we, we both know a former Egyptian, um, you know, student, uh, you know, that I had that was one of your peers or Balal's mm-hmm. who, you know, um, you, you remember Tarek um, from Egypt, uh, who's an intellectual, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's in Britain now, but anyway, um, philosopher, I think, or something. But anyway, I remember him saying there is no democracy in Egypt. You know, you have, and I asked him to describe this to me. And he said, "Yep." he said, under Hosni Mubarak, you had two votes. You could vote for him or against him, or you could vote for him or against anybody else. Or it was something, anyway, his, and he said it to me. It's either for him or for him. That's right.
2: (laughs) Your vote will go to him either way. So this is a form of, in Lebanon, it's not really like that, but okay, we do have uh, elections and we do have uh, a form of democracy. So people go and vote. But why, why I call it a fake democracy, it's because when you make people hungry and when you make people poor, and then when it comes to elections, you go and give them money, you give them food, it's like you're controlling their decision.
0: Well, that's the same problem that they have in Gaza with, you know, what happened there with so-called democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, Hamas basically went in and built hospitals, whereas the Palestinian Authority and the other factions were so divided, they weren't doing anything for the people. And so the most radical out of all of them got voted in. And, you know, the Western world went, what the hell, we've totally screwed this one up and then just fenced them off.
2: And this is the same thing that's happening in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have a population of people that are either uh, without jobs or on the brinks of bankruptcy and all of that. And then when the elections come, you find all the political parties coming. I have Once I was watching, and this is one, one, this is one of the things that really made me very angry. One of the political parties made shawarma stance, and they were giving people free shawarma. Seriously, <laughs> is this the way you win votes?
0: Oh come on! This, this is how we... all po- this is how all political parties do it. That's a rally, right?
2: But it, it was not just a rally. Uh huh. It was, you know, and uh, 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 and when you look at it, it was, okay, free shawarma for everyone and free stand and everything and free food. But then when you go deeper, when you go behind behind the scenes and behind the curtains and all of that. You will see a large amount of money being pumped to people, mm-hmm. to people's bank accounts. We want your vote. I even know that uh, um, in some countries, I'm not I'm not gonna name I'm not gonna name any countries, and in some companies, they used to tell their employees in Lebanese companies abroad. They used to tell their employees, "We're going to give you a ticket. We're going to give you money." You just have to go and vote. Okay. Even if and if you say no, I don't want to go, you're frowned upon. Mm -hmm. You you'll be going at war and you'll be eventually you'll be laid off.
0: Okay, so that's the level of corruption that everybody can understand is truly corrupt. Yeah. And that's the stuff Yeah, okay, so I get that. All right. So just to frame this picture, so Lebanon is not really a functioning democracy and you've got and you've got um people who are a lot of people who are poor from different you know with with deep history so like if you've lost your parents or grandparents to genocide or something like that you're going to you know or or um whatever there's a, there's a deep sense of martyrdom on all in all different religious groups um it seems or in several of them there's this sense that and in fact, actually, across Lebanon, there's that sense. I know Israel offered aid to <laughs> to Lebanon and um, you're smiling and I'm sort of like nervously chuckling to even raise this question. You know, in Canada, they don't even like to talk about it <laughs> because it's considered. No, go ahead. You, can't you ask know, uh, in can ask me. In, in, I know, I you know, friends of mine in Canada were like, oh, we can't talk about that. In Europe they 're very vocal about like the, 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 the hypocrisy of the State of Israel, um, and you know Europeans really get the Palestinian issue, but if you talk to you know i 've got friends who are in high places in diplomacy, yeah. and they were like, you know the Palestinians don 't do themselves any favor So again, when I talk about the beauty of going to Lebanon and seeing just how conflicted everyone is, you realize, oh that, this is what goes on across the Middle East." You know, like these, you know, palm greasing experiences that you describe with voting. It happens everywhere. And overall, you know, how much power people really have. It happens everywhere. So, you know, there's something really wild about living in the Middle East that I think Arabs Mm -hmm. generally love in a sense because, you know, and I love it. I'm an expat who's been in the Middle East for 18 years now, Qatar for two, Saudi for 16 years now. And it's like it's Mm -hmm. epitomized by the idea that you're driving down the road in one direction and some cowboy comes the other way straight up your lane towards you and you you you're like why are you driving on the wrong why are you driving on the wrong side of the road straight at me it's wild everyone veers around each other and you somehow learn the predictability about how people drive and function and so you know um you know as much as we can talk with and i think i think there's this deep history of arabs lebanese egyptians arabs um, you know, and probably Jewish people, too, like just people in the region who, you know, um, and, you know, Christians, like everybody just has for a long time in these old cities talked about life. So when you talk mm-hmm. about it, on the one hand there's great fist in the arm passion about or fist in the air passion about when you need to. That energy fires up and you've got to fight against governments that are just so bad Um, or, you know, forces that are just so corrupt. And then on the other hand, you know, um, on a better day, you know, everyone can sit around and laugh about the ridiculousness of it all, which the existentialists basically, you know, existential philosophers and psychologists, which I've just been studying, they basically say that the world is batshit crazy, and it's up to individuals to figure out how to make sense of it, but also how to make meaning with your own life. And so Lebanese people are really in that pot with each other, you know, that stew pot, stewing around. You've got this current event um, that's just happened. And, you know, it was a mushroom cloud that went over the city, and it turned over, you know, like cruise ships, and it tore apart rich, and I don't mean rich in terms of money, but basically your most deeply... Um, you know, like alive neighborhoods in the center of the city. So, you know, the pain is so obvious. The world feels it. Your parents, again, what did your mom say? Like, how, how do they sit with it?
2: Well, um, the one thing, uh, uh, like, which is remarkable to me, my mom said, Lebanon is gone. Wow. It will never come back. And this is something that you know. When she was in tears, she said, "I don't know. I don't know how. how my Like, it's very conflicting. The emotions are very conflicting. And at, at, at one hand, she's worried about her children who are in Lebanon. On the other hand, she is. She was watching all these, all, all this destruction and all this blood everywhere and all that. and and, and she told me, I'm." I'm in tears not only because I'm afraid for my for my children's well being, but it's also my country. It's it's this we have a level of patriotism, and you know um, we don't know how we're going to recover from this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know how to recover from this. Some of the uh, some of the things that we're seeing on TV right now, it's like you know I have been in these areas. I have been there. I have lived there. I have memories there. They're all tarnished and they're all gone and they're all blown into pieces.
0: But yet the Lebanese people are considered to be like super resilient among, you know, like my experience, even in 2006, when the war was starting to kick off with um, Israel and Hezbollah, you know, those two sides really going at each other is that you know like there was a kind of okay take a deep breath shutter the windows right there's going to be war for a while god knows how long it will go on like we're gonna and and people have described it from you know friends of mine in england have said yeah like what's really sad is that the lebanese people know the minute there's trouble run into the closet you know she said i'd be in the middle of the room you know and so of course like people so you know when the bombs are flying that um that uh you've got to hide from the glass and all that jazz so, you know, in general, like, there's this sentiment that, th- that that Lebanon's not going to recover, and yet you've got such resilience built into your, hi- from your history. Like, what's your take on it?
2: Well, um, the only way that uh, it can... I don't want to say it been it will recover. Like it is I, recovering. I like say...
0: So, so was your mom's reaction just that first in the heat of the moment, like it? Th- we're never going to recover. Our hope is taken away yet again, and this one was too big. Or, yeah. and what's that about? Is it because the city center was, you know, like ripped to shreds and it no, can't it's, recover? It's, it's, what's it it's about? The fact
2: that, it's the fact that everything in Lebanon is going wrong. Okay, is going south. Yeah. So uh... again. Uh, when when you see all these factors coming in together and this this I, I like to call it tragedy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's really a tragedy. It's like, you know, it's the final straw. Uh people and and my like my parents wonder how are we ever going to recover from this? You have uh you have a country that is <clears throat> that is Financially, it's deteriorating, and it's not only deteriorating. I mean,
0: it's already. Yeah,
2: uh, it's it's dying. Yeah, financially, we're dying. Yeah, and to add to it, and an explosion of this extent, uh, you really see see uh, hopelessness in, in 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 people's eyes and in people's souls. You know, you can't. You people.
1: Well, you can't you just, kill a you person just...
2: until you killed their soul. Yeah. And what this explosion did, it just killed people's soul. You might not have died, uh, or you might not have been injured physically, but your soul gradually died. And this was like like the final straw. People people just have no more. Uh, they don't believe anymore that there is any way of recovering. Mm-hmm. this. And this is why I don't like to call it recovery. I like, to call a re- I like to call it a rebirth. There's going to be a rebirth of Lebanon. There's going to be something different, something new. And I hope that we reach something new, something very different from what we are living right now. But the problem is it's going to be very violent and it's going to be very bloody. And, and everyone in Lebanon, if you speak to any person, person in Lebanon, they'll tell you the same thing we do not see a peaceful resolution to this. It's going to be very, 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 it's going to be a bloodbath. Because so, when
0: you say bloodbath, who's going to die? The people. So, it's based on religious lines?
2: No, 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 no. The thing is now, uh, I don't know if you watched the news yesterday or if, you, or, or if the news came to you yesterday. There were, uh, there were demonstrations and, and it turned violent yesterday what uh, we had around 200 people injured in mm-hmm. these demonstrations mm-hmm. because uh the government decided that they will not tolerate these demonstrations I saw that so yeah. you have you have people who came to power who came to, who came to power and they have so much blood on their hands I don't think they will leave easily okay I don't think that they will just hand hand things over
1: yeah
2: it's going to be a bloodshed. So, in order to and and I hate to be and I hate to uh, say this, but you know, this is calling it the way it is. A person who came on piles and piles of bodies will not leave until piles and piles of bodies are there. Right. And that's and that's and that's an ugly and very, very, very uh, actual truth. We cannot run away from it.
0: Okay but let me as, understand something I get that mm-hmm. let me understand something so the current government is um it's it's a shared power isn't it between like different religious to some extent. religious factions and it,
2: it, to religious factions yes but it's not uh, as we like to call it it's not multicolored. it just has one color okay you know? it's they they call it the government of Hezbollah right now, because they have the majority in it, and yeah. they have the majority of, uh, of the say in it. Yeah. So it's and that's, not really, that's sort it's of what France
0: really... is insinuating in a way, isn't it? Like, and that, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it is. But um, you see, you don't have to be in the government to impact the, the, the politics of this government. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is weird about Lebanon. Okay, they tell you that uh, we're not in power we don't like the Lebanese people right now don't don't give a rat's ass whether or not these political parties are in the government right now or not you're still you're still in one way or another you're still governing the country Mm -hmm. because Lebanon is really divided into into areas and um it's kind of a federation so it's like in the United States you have you have uh, these states, and every state has its own governor, and they have their own laws. Okay, they have the the president, and they have uh, the senate, and all of that, that which governs the country as a whole. But then, when you go down to the, to each state, there is there are laws that are different. Of Just course. For example, there yeah. are there are states that allow drinking at eighteen, and there yeah. are others that allow drinking at twenty one. Lebanon's so like it's this? the same thing so Lebanon is is in many ways the same way mm-hmm. the political parties control areas yes and they control and, and and you cannot say you cannot say we're out of power no you're still in power but just indirectly
0: and the thing is you're like you've got you know I don't know cuz I don't watch the Lebanese politics closely and I don't want to like sort of like hammer the like, what do you call it? I don't want to, like, flog this point, but the, the, the observation I'm getting, like, what I'm going to... I'm going to sum this up to say that you've got a, a government that's comprised of different, um, you know, people with different value systems. They they, they mm-hmm. control... Uh, and their parties control certain areas of the country. That's not altogether that different from any other part of the world, you know. that You've got representational governments, supposedly but but you know what i'm what i'm seeing or hearing is that you've got you've got two things going on you've got entrenchment of those political powers and i can't help but think that they are backed by some people in lebanon genuinely backed by people yes and then you've got and, and the- you've got other people and i you know this is what's in the western media and this is what i hear you describing and of course like many lebanese former students of mine are just fed up and I don't know you're all from different persuasions and backgrounds so you do represent the broad array of Lebanese as well who are just fed up many of my many of our Lebanese like friends that we both know don't like to talk politics because they do like you see the broader umbrella picture which is that this is just messing up a country where people, mm-hmm. if they could just choose to live in peace and they weren't agitated by a corrupt government that's ripping them off, and now causing yeah. your currency to crash to the tune of 60, 70, 80 percent. You know, you described mm-hmm. your brother Hassan's salary as going from like $2,500 to the value of 1,400 US a month.
2: Um, no, 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 no. From 2,500 to 400.
0: Right? Did I say what did I say? Fourteen? Oh, I meant four. Fourteen. Yeah. Right. Four hundred a month. You know, this is tanking. I have been watching this, wondering how is everyone doing. Um. So that's the picture. Life
1: is difficult in oh, Lebanon
2: right now. I'm sure. And you know, one thing. One thing is that the banks are not giving people their money. And that's one thing that was really frustrating. Uh, you have money in the bank, but you can't access it. You can't take it when you when you need it. You can only take $300 a week. It's like someone giving you your allowance. I mean, how can you live? Okay, my brother is still not married. He still doesn't have a family and all that. But how can you live? How can you provide for a family? Let's say a family of four members. Okay. And someone has a newborn. How are you going to give them milk and diapers and the basic, basic needs? Basic living needs for three hundred dollars a week.
0: Well, I remember being in Lebanon on a short—I don't know. Like I saw your brother. Did I meet you too? I met yeah. you both, right? We had a coffee on Hamra Street, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I remember at that time, you know, you guys were telling me that 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 times were tough and that the economics were difficult. This is like at a whole new low, really. So you That's know, it. I want to come back to your and let's wrap this conversation up because I think we've covered a lot of ground. You, I want to be clear, do you represent the majority of people um, in your views in terms of like both feeling, because I hear the polarity of feeling both, well more than one thing really, despair, anger, anger is a propelling emotion and also a Mm -hmm. sense of vision that there needs to be a complete rebirth. Like is that a majority viewpoint or not?
2: Yes, that is that is and yeah I think I think if um'm if I don't want like exaggerate the number seventy uh, percent of the Lebanese people want something new want something different want a whole new system where we're not governed by uh we're not governed by religion and we're not governed by uh political parties anymore we just want something that's we just want people who are really, really uh, patriots who want the benefit of the country, not just the benefit of one political party or one, pro- or, one or some political families. This is what we want to see. We want to see some. We want to see people who really want the, the re, to really rebuild the country and um, make it make it a strong nation.
0: So you've I got mean, leaders Lebanon, who go on.
2: Lebanon is a rich country. Yeah lebanon I'm not just saying uh culturally I mean culturally and in terms of resources it's really a rich country mm-hmm. we have we now have discovered that we have petroleum we have natural gas we have uh, we have farms we have everything that we have everything that would make our country one of the strongest countries in the world, both economically and financially and everything but uh Unfortunately, uh, but unfortunately, uh, all these treasures are being stolen. We want people that will really use these things, use these treasures, to to make this country a real country, okay, not just a state.
0: So, do you know Zena Decash?
2: I, I don't recall.
0: You don't know Zena Decash? She's an actress in Lebanon, and she's, um, well, she's also now a drama therapist, a psychotherapist, but she's a comedian, actually, and she's not from Beirut, so she's from Tripoli area, I think. Anyway, I met her at the Compassion Summit um, for International Schools in this region um, in Jordan last year, and she talked about her work in, in changing the Lebanese justice system for people who are incarcerated without actually ever having been convicted, and they were incarcerated for 20 years in the system. So her popular theater work um, in the prisons, which typically works like this, you go in, you do a social issue, piece of drama therapy, playmaking, but it, you know, they invited in the politicians who came in to raise awareness about these injustices, and laws have been changed. And rights have been, you know, improved for people in prison to some degree, to some degree. You're like to are
2: very, 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 to a very low extent.
0: Well, but I've seen, very, I've seen very, that low. she has had one law change. So we were talking incremental steps. But anyway, you know, people like Zaina, um, uh, Dakash. you know, um, I've been watching her sort of, I can't read the Arabic, but I, I she's an amazing person. You know, I can see that, like, there is a a collective horror over what's happened and a determination because you've come through, like, garbage crisis where garbage was allowed to accumulate. Like, honestly, like, it's like it's a comedy of errors. And as you say, it's tragic. But, you know, you have an underlying, um, you know, vision for the future, which matches what I describe as like it matches chaos theory. And this is what I think Lebanese people are banking on there's a theory called the chaos theory that from out of chaos emerges order and when you when i watch the bbc and the bbc of course is like trying to get you know your current prime minister to talk about things or whatever you know and and the line is or i don't know if it's the prime minister or the president anyway the two of them um you know one seems better than the other but you know i get that lebanese think they're both corrupt they're all corrupt um, you know, he basically spouts the line, sp- speaks the line that we cannot have a power vacuum in Lebanon. And is that really what people like? Do you do you agree with that or disagree with that? Because what happens if everybody just walked out of government and said, OK, our hands are up. We, we are stepping aside. You take care of it, people. What do you think would happen? There
2: has to. There has to be a transition period. You cannot just, you know, uh, ask for people to just all of a sudden just leave. But that's what people call for in
0: the streets. Get out. Just get out.
2: Get out, of course. But uh, you can't just, you know, just uh, have, have people come and fix something without really knowing what's really going on. Okay. We as people, as normal people, we, we see the outer shell, but we're not really deep into what's going on. So there has to be a hand, a handover phase, a transition phase. Okay. Uh, I believe that. And, um, uh, I believe that in order to have something that's really fruitful and productive, yes, these people should leave, but, but, they cannot just say we're out.
0: Okay, so you basically, you're advocating, and I'm guessing this is this. thank you for clarifying that. Because, so if basically these leaders all said, we'll leave in three months and we'll give you free elections again, would that but work? they can't
2: leave in three months. This is the thing. What I believe should happen, they should all be taken into custody. They should all be investigated. This is the way, this is the transition period that I'm talking about because if they're just going to say we're out without any accountability for what happened uh, for what ha- not only during this explosion but during all these years where they were in power where they were governing the country where they were you know doing all the policies and all of that if nobody comes and takes them into into custody and really questions what's going on we will never understand and we will never be able to 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 take things uh, in, a, in, a, in a proper way and grow. So, so the only way that, that I believe Lebanon can, can uh, have this rebirth is by taking all these politicians, not allowing them just to leave. No, you are going to come. You're going to have to answer to all, to everything that happened. You're going to have to fill us in on everything, on, on every small detail in, in the country so we can understand how to begin the reform
0: yeah well you talk about arresting them and then they've got to be accountable but then who's going to run the practical affairs of the country or do you think that at the municipal levels there's enough functionality to support the structure in the vacuum of any political discourse at the highest
2: levels well um we're gonna have to start from the top of the pyramid and then go down right this is the way this is the way i believe things should happen so cleaning up cleaning up the country cleaning up this mess that they have, that they were, that we're not just only, not, not only that they have made, but we were just living in right now. So in order to clean it up, you're going to have to start from the top of the pyramid and then go
1: down.
0: So basically, you could have okay. civil affairs still run with the police, mm-hmm. with the army, keeping control of the people, just like all governments close their doors and have holidays. You know, sessions mm-hmm. where they're not in session that's what the people want is like, get out. We want to arrest you. We want to try you and we want to know what happened. And then we want to punish you.
2: You see, one of the things that I believe that was very, very powerful, uh, is as an example, is what happened here in Saudi Arabia, when, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman took all the powerful people, all the powerful businessmen, the people who had the money, and he locked them up. Mm-hmm. And he set an example
0: of it. That it could be you done. That it could be yeah, done, it right? it could be done. Mm-hmm. You
2: don't, don't, even, don't even think about being so powerful. You're not that powerful to do whatever you want. If you're going to mess up, you're going to be locked up. So you're talking you're about, about a major
0: questions. coup of the entire government mm-hmm. by the people.
2: So uh, let's just say, let's just say, first <laughs> example, for example, let's say they take the president and they throw him in jail. OK, let's say they take the prime minister and, they, and all the previous prime ministers and they, they throw him in jail. In this way, people who are corrupted or who have any thoughts of doing anything in the future will stop. Mm-hmm. There is no there is no one that is very There is nobody that is very powerful and will get away with, with anything that they, mm-hmm. that they, that they want to do. But we know so from, when you set an yeah. example, yeah. when you set up, when you set a strong example, of you know of really fighting corruption yeah corruption will gradually go down and will demolish
0: I get that but the amount of you know yeah. I mean honestly you look at how Hosni Mubarak fought um you know his like you look at how some of these leaders Gaddafi in Libya mm-hmm. Hosni Mubarak how these leaders at the top end fought their demise if you will even Saddam Hussein you know they're not going to go Mm. down without a fight so you know when you talk about bloodshed you know like
2: this this is why this is why this is why i told you this there is going to be a lot of bloodshed Mm -hmm. in order to reach to a to a state where we can really arrest these people and you know take them to trial and question what they were doing there is going to be a lot of they're going to put up a fight. Who's going, to, going who's to go going to be
0: the right? one who's going to be the ones to um let's just kind of like dial it into a broader sense. Who's going to be the ones mm-hmm. to force this change to happen? Is it young people? You know, with rocks in their hands fighting against military? Like who's yeah, going to be it, able to bring this it, about? It's
1: not it's
2: not going to be just young people. Uh yesterday, for example, uh the Ministry of Foreign Affairs were, was taken by uh former Former military veterans, they took it back, and and when they said that you broke in. They said no, we did not break in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We took it back. Okay, it's so, ours. So, We're think, it back. so so do you think
1: so? is it
0: coup like like basically are, the military, good people in power will will shove aside exactly. the corrupt ones. Not only
2: not not only not only we have uh decent military people, but we also have decent judges. Yeah, we also have. Okay people who are really who, are, who really have a history of decency and those people we can count on you know to really lead the reform uh and lead the country into something better um you can't there is always there is always you can't just generalize and say the whole judicial system is corrupt there is always someone or or some people or a group of people who are really decent and really want the benefit of the country and you can you can rely on you know steering steering us into safety
1: i get and this to is something s- yeah.
2: that uh, i count on we have people who are decent we okay. have decent people who we can count on
0: so that's good to hear because you know like in we've been talking for like almost gosh let me see an hour and 15 minutes we've been talking about like oh, like really a really chaotic disastrous situation but in um, in in among that, you basically still have a vision that, you know, there will be a rebirth and that this is what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. So there's an understanding of what needs to happen. And it needs to come still from people who are in power. But, you know, my view on this mm-hmm. is that what you're talking about is like a wide scale coup or overtaking of power and that, you know, you know. That people are hawkish in the Middle East, and that they're going to be, um, you know, strategizing on all sides, and so this is what we'll be watching for in Lebanon from your standpoint, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah,
2: we're gonna be we're gonna be seeing a lot of a lot of like um, it's give and take in this situation. So the politicians will try and you know say. For example, yesterday the Prime Minister told us, give us two months and we'll do the reform. You've been in power for almost a year. You did nothing. So please, just, you know, I'm not going to give you two months. Step down. Give give this power to someone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, but it's not going to be easy. There is going to be, as I said, there is going to be bloodshed. There is going to be a lot of resistance to, you know, stepping down and, you know, just letting things go. And one of the things that people are requesting right now is that, you know, the politicians—they got rich, they got filthy rich because of all the corruption. We want this back.
0: Yeah, you put you want, want to shake the pockets of them, just like the Saudi, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, exactly. crown prince did to the. Exactly. Exactly. This is what here. we want. Mm-hmm. We
2: want them to be okay. What's yours is yours. What's really like legitimately, you got it out of your salary or you got it out of your own money? That's yours. We're not gonna. We're not looking mm-hmm. at that. We're looking at. For example, the aid that came, uh, the international community many times gave money to Lebanon for rebuilding Lebanon after, after the 2006 war with Israel. This money, like for example, they gave us $11, $11 billion. Mm-hmm. From this $11 billion, the only amount that was used in Lebanon was $2 billion.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: $8 billion disappeared. And then when you ask, where are these $8 billion? Nobody tells you anything about them, mm-hmm. and we know where they are, but you know that the way they answer you and the way they tell you, well, we use them for um, whatever and whatever and whatever, and you know when you come down on the ground, you see nothing. So there's
1: really no evidence of back.
0: there's no evidence of that expenditure. Okay, so you want to shake? No so that's what the people want is to shake the politicians and obviously fix the banking system. You have France exactly. willing to galvanize Europe to support, and the world wants to help. And so now we're watching the Lebanese people engage in, you know, all sorts of levels of of um, both surviving this situation and recovering in the short term. What do you think, yeah. let's just bring it right down to something more personal, what do you think is going to happen to the streets that and the buildings that have been destroyed in this? I mean, we've got really a number of concerns. One, how are people going to live financially? Uh, you know, presumably money is going to continue to come in, as much as possible? Like, do you send money to your family? Do people do that? How are people surviving? Yeah. Let's start with that. Now, uh,
2: of course, now, uh, uh, people are sending people abroad, like, for example, me and all the expats, they're sending money home, you know, just, you know, to, to fix things. Because we know for a fact that if the country, if the government gets any kind of uh, support from the international community and it goes in the hands of the government, we're not going to see any of it. So what we're doing right now, for example, personally, I home see the damage, what happened in the house, what happened all over, and tell me how much it would cost, and I'll, I'll be paying for it because yeah, this is, this is something that this is something that will not be done through the government. So people are, and, and there's something beautiful happening right now in Lebanon. Uh, all the companies, all the construction companies, they're just charging for the cost price. They're not just, you know, they're not getting any, any. Uh, they're not investing. They're not getting any returns and all of that. And that's something beautiful. That's mm-hmm. that's one of the beautiful aspects of Lebanon. People help each other,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: people consolidate and come together in, mm-hmm. in times of crisis. And this is something that you don't see in other in, in other societies in Lebanon. Because we have been through so much, so we know how to help each other out. Mm-hmm. It's no longer we don't we don't depend on uh, on the government anymore. We just depend on each other, and that's something really beautiful about Lebanon. So uh, there's a lifting up that that's believe, going
0: on from outside as well as inside.
2: Mm-hmm. Another thing that I believe, you know, I believe that um, within within this chaos, opportunity comes. So. With all this rebuilding and all this uh, money expenditure that's happening, in one way or another, the economics will rise again in one way. But you see, it's very important and it's very pivotal that we take this opportunity and really rise, not just, you know, let it go and let the, people, the, big, the big sharks take advantage mm-hmm. of it and, and then, you know, the poor gets poorer and the rich gets richer. Mm-hmm. So, this is one of the things that I really 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 hope happens is that uh within all this that's happening, we have an opportunity to to really take to, to really take advantage of all the support that's coming from the international countries, from uh, countries like for example from the United States from Saudi Arabia from mm-hmm. Qatar and Emirates mm-hmm. and France and all of that they're really pouring in right now money and aid medical and uh food and all of that. So why so why not really take this opportunity and and make something out of it?
0: Well, typically I, it's the I, I innovators, do. isn't it? That's it's the it's the very entre it's the very enterprising spirit of all individuals who see. Look, you know, I believe that actually the fundamentals of life are this. When you see gaps that need to be filled and you go in service of filling those gaps to meet the needs of others, people prosper, you know. So mm-hmm. So it's usually the en- the innovators the the enterprising the people who are industrious and hard working um you know who who can profit and grow from this so ultimately as you said you know the engine sort of the the economic um machinery is going to continue to turn it's just i think everybody was just their breaths were taken away by what happened it was breathtaking you know everybody is like and now they just um they just had the sort of like anniversary of the, you know, the 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 nuclear bomb in Hiroshima, um, you know, quite mm-hmm. fittingly, like right after this. So we've just had like a live reminder of what that looks like and is, feels like. It it's, it's the same thing. It looks like the same thing, just on a smaller scale, but big enough to take the world's breath away. So yes okay so you know um that there's that and there's that there's that spirit of the Lebanese that you you fundamentally you're smiling you know and and I agree with you I think fundamentally like I think that's the spirit of people in the end and especially the fighting spirit of the Lebanese this and I mean that in that kind of like the will to live and to really live right Lebanese
2: people love like they love to live
0: yeah and
2: and that's something that is special you can't break the spirits of the Lebanese people
1: mm. you
2: may uh, you may uh, bring it down a little bit but one way or another they will find it they, they will find it in themselves to come back
0: do you think that that learn. positivity needs to be so you know you say that is that level of positivity on the ground I mean how does that mix with anger <laughs> you know well, like uh, is it just timing point, look, or, or where does positivity start to creep in or when
2: Uh, at this point, uh, because I'm not, I did not live the situation, I did not live the blast in Lebanon, yeah. so m- emotionally I'm not, I'm not at the same level as, as the people who are there, For sure. who, are, who lived it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. So You have the objective uh, even, distance even...
0: to be able to see mm-hmm. that, whereas people on mm-hmm. the ground are still just in the heat of trauma.
2: Exactly. So, um, I think that people are still going to boil, uh, until they see something different, uh, different happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, eventually, and this is something that, uh, this is something that we have experienced firsthand with Lebanon, uh, people will get back on their, on their feet right now. Yes. People are not, Listening, they, they don't want. They don't want to to hear someone uh, coming to them and saying, "Okay, we're going to fix it." No, we don't want that. We just want you to fix it. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to tell us what you're going to do. We just do it. So, um, at the moment, I don't think people will go back to normal at a very quick pace as it used to be before it will take it will take i don't think it's going to take years it's going to take months mm-hmm. until you know people go back to the to to, to living until but, the streets
0: but... look a little more normal until people are going into the shops exactly. until there's a trade mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. and, and you know like clearly you know i i can't help but think about this as an artist that my experience of hamra and that and you know i don't know if it was gmezi where i went to an art gallery but you know art will thrive like even in covid we're in such a global disaster here but Mm -hmm. fundamentally a lot of communication gets birthed and there's always going to be a renaissance of a sort but you know you have to be through it before you understand what's happening to you you know the existentialists say that you cannot derive meaning from talking about it the meaning comes after you've been through something And it Mm -hmm. seems like Lebanon is basically, you know, you describe it beautifully. I really appreciate you being willing to interview and talk about this. And it's so good to connect Mm -hmm. with you, uh, Mohammed, on this. Do your parents feel a little bit better four (coughs) days in? Like, do they, as your, have have their views changed at all about, has your mom's view changed about the hopelessness of it?
2: Not really. Because as it it continues, uh... I mean, yesterday with the with the with the demonstrations and all the violence that happened, uh, it's like you know um, the glimpse of hope that we have is the, this flare of hope is gradually dying down
1: mm-hmm.
2: because you're not seeing something, you're not seeing the government and you're not seeing uh, officials taking responsibility the way they should.
0: It's pretty. Than, it's a pretty know, deeply try. damaged situation, isn't it? It's so. Mm-hmm. It it does seem so. Despite your vision of what should happen, it seems so. It almost feels like um, pre-Iraq War, and we know what happened in Iraq after Saddam Hussein was out. Mm-hmm. It's not any better. Not really. Not much, if mm-hmm. at all. You know, it's not better. So, it it almost feels like on the one hand you can't. You can't believe, this is my feeling, that you can't believe it's not going to get better. But every time you look at the picture, there's a problem that, you know, there are deep issues. Uh, So I can imagine, I I guess I sort of understand your mom's view. And, you know, I'm going to interview, like, Hadil, and she, she said her parents went through the exact, they were gutted because they have spent 40 years working out of Mm -hmm. lebanon and she said their hopes of retiring in lebanon are done you know and they're in oman and so you know i don't want to i mean i've kind of given away like the meat and potatoes of that but you know or i've given away like the essence of what what i want to talk to her about so that's coming up in another interview but you know the pain of that like is is that what your parents are living with
2: yeah Mm mm-hmm you know, uh, everyone dreams of going back home one way or another yeah. or one day. Yeah. But um, when I speak to my mother, I tell her one thing. Thank goodness that they're living right now in the States. I would, uh, I would have been devastated if my parents were in Lebanon during this time. Mm-hmm. And especially during this uh, pandemic, you can't actually go there and be a real support I mean, my brothers, they're young, they can, you know, they can stand their grounds and they can, you know, they can handle it. Mm-hmm. But when you're speaking to, to the like you're speaking about elderly people, mm-hmm. when they go through this, your first instinct is, I have to be there. I have mm-hmm. to physically be there. So when I speak to her, I tell her, thank goodness that your retirement plan does not include Lebanon mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, 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 and and I tell them if you're going to invest, if you're going to do anything in your lives, keep it in the States. Do not think about Lebanon right now. Mm-hmm. Lebanon is 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 not a place where, you know, someone I don't like to call it as um, you know, at the end stage of life. I, I like to call it as, you know, the resting stage of life. They're they they've worked so hard, they've worked for so long. It's now their turn to rest. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want them to go and rest in a place that is torn apart. It's not called resting. Mm -hmm. I have friends uh, who had their parents have go back to Lebanon because they didn't have the opportunity to go somewhere else. And really, I have seen them. I have seen when I I speak to my friends and I ask them about their parents at home, when they describe the situation and I picture my parents in the same situation, uh, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Is that the fact that you can't do anything for them, and you can't do you can't do anything to to better their situation? And that's something that I thank goodness for. You're never going to go back to Lebanon mm-hmm. for now. For well, now. Y- you I know, I hope y- that in the future yeah. they do, but mm-hmm. for now, it's uh, it's They're off safe. the table.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, the thing is, like, your parents are still young enough to be able to go back and visit when things calm down, and. You know, I imagine like, I mean, this happened in Beirut and while Beirut is the heart of the country, uh, you know, it, I mean, it, are there international airports in Tripoli or is there only one airport in Lebanon?
2: There's only one airport. There are uh, there is one more airport, but it's not functioning.
0: So so you see that's why that's why the nation feels this like personally. So even if people in Tripoli or up in the mountains, you know, are not affected materially or physically by this, everybody goes through Beirut, right?
2: Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Everyone
2: has to go through Beirut. Mm-hmm. And actually it's not only the airport, it's also the port. Yeah. the, the seaport the, the, which is born now and is and is. It's a lifeline for supplies.
0: More. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. we don't
2: have any more port. Yeah. I mean, if we're we have another port in Tripoli, which it's, is really we're very small. Yeah. And it cannot it cannot do what uh, the the port of Beirut? That's
0: right. Yeah. Did.
2: Yeah. And we also have another port in in, uh, in the south, but it's also it's not equipped. Yeah. To be uh, a point of you know a point. Uh, the, the national port. The national port was needed. Yeah. so that don't have any
0: yeah. alternatives yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Mohammed, it's been a long conversation. How do you feel about it?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's it was nice. You know, it's good to share to share ideas and and you know to speak about perspectives. And it also gives you a place where you know you can share hope mm-hmm. with people. I really like if, if people are going to be listening to this I really like to give to convey a message of hope we will come back we will be reborn I don't want to say we will we will uh, like we will fix this no it's not about fixing it it's about being it's about a rebirth we will have another new Lebanon and which is going to be full of life and it's going to be a place where everyone's going to be wanting to be there this is a dream, and I hope and I wish that this dream was true, and it will.
0: I hope so, too. Wow, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to close off this special guest interview with the lyrics to the song that I've written for this occasion uh, for the people and for the country. The song is called Lebanon. I haven't yet recorded it, it will come. If you've never been to the capital and walked the streets, past a mosque and a church and a humble little grocery, next to the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, near the UN, next to the NGO, on the corner of this neighborhood, you'll wanna go, you'll want to go. If you've never been to the cafe bars in the heart of the heart of this city, Smoke, drink, have a coffee, think Just be with your mates till it gets late Walk home, roam, laugh and head to the sea Past the old chateau shot up in some war That's where you'll want to be You'll want to be Climb to the top of your building Next to the school for the refugees There's history in every window History in every story Listen now here's one out there's a camp where the walls are tall and politics are complicated just like this just like this barbed wire and amnesty babies born generations lost borders closing in while the enemies talk and talk a lot now the clock has stopped another bomb is blown and glory goes to those who know while you raise your hands up fists in the air you help your neighbours, first you care. Sweep the shards of broken glass. A piano plays a song to last. Auld lang syne, for the sake of old times. Lebanon, this is your song. Stay strong. And that's a wrap. That is the end of a very long interview and conversation with Mohammed Faki. Thank you for tuning in, and I would absolutely love to hear back from you on the podcast. So you can go to the website on Anchor FM or click the podcast and leave a voice recording, which can be featured in the next podcast episode, or you can shoot me a voicemail. Uh, and send me a little message on, oh, I don't know, Instagram, private messaging, or send me, get in touch via the Twitter account, and I can send you an email as to how you can reach me if you really, really want to connect. Otherwise, you know I'm right here. So sorry, I've been out of action for four months, four plus months. There's a big story for that, which I'll get into when when I come back in the next episode thank you for tuning in look after yourselves everybody take really good care now and if you have a Lebanese family that you feel you can adopt or make a donation towards or you would like to donate to one of my former students don't hesitate to get to get in touch and I'll let you know how that can happen okay take care take very good care